Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very happy to welcome Andre Snare Magnuson to the podcast. Andre is an Icelandic writer who's written novels, poetry, plays, short stories and essays. His work has been published or performed in more than 30 countries. He was awarded the Icelandic Literary Prize in 1999 for the children's book and play Blue Planet, and again in 2006 for the non-fiction book Dreamland, a critique of Icelandic industrial and energy policy. His latest book, On Time and Water, explores our relationship to time in an age of ecological crisis. So thank you very much, Andre, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you. Nice being with you from the distance. Yes. So I've just been reading your, your wonderful new book uh, on time and water, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about your writing and uh, about Iceland, about glaciers. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you maybe just, uh, for the listeners, introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about your background and, and what your, your, your interests and what you do? Well, uh, I think I actually have uh, uh, my 25th publishing birthday this week. That is, uh, my first book came out 25 years ago. It was a book of poetry. And uh, I was still in university studying Icelandic literature. And then, uh, so that was 95. Then uh, 96, I had two books coming out, which one was uh, published by Iceland's biggest supermarket chain called Bonus Poetry and uh, Short Stories. And uh, and then I was still in university and suddenly I had published three books. So I I haven't had a job since then. I've, I've just been writing for the last 25 years. So I've been doing children's books, uh, poetry, plays, documentary films. I've been kind of uh, always challenging myself with genres or fields that maybe I'm not previously uh, an expert in or uh, or knowing that I'm good at, but mostly doing that because of some inspiration, some art that uh, makes me want to do and step into that field. So uh, I've been kind of sometimes betraying my audience that is when uh, a poetry book did very well i did a children's book and when that did very well i did a sci-fi book that children can't understand and then when people wanted more sci-fi i did a book called dreamland which is a book about reality a non-fiction about the nature and highlands of iceland 
so basically, I think it's very difficult to write, and I can only really write if I think the issue is super important or if I think the idea is the most important idea in the world. Otherwise, I just wander around. <laughs> yes, well, it's clear that some of the ideas that are, you think are important at the moment, uh, recurring themes and at the heart of, of on, on Time and Water, but also your earlier works as well, is the environment, state of the planet. And just maybe before we go into more detail and talk about your books and so forth, can you maybe just let us know or talk about uh, what's on your mind at the moment? We face so many interlocking, interconnected challenges, crises, whatever you call them, environmental, social, indeed economic, as well as the virus. So what is it that is on your mind, Andre? Well, I, I kind of dumped that all into the book. So uh, basically what I was trying to grasp in my book was how do you speak about something that you can say is bigger than language? How can you, you know, how can you read an IPCC report and be bored while the issue is, you know, basically the biggest threat that we as a species have seen uh, on paper or uh, according to any given knowledge. So uh, what I'm trying to do is to, yeah, and what I was trying to do in my book was to kind of get my head around what does it mean when a scientist says the ocean's acid level will drop from 8.1 to 7.7? .7? You know, 0 0.4 is a very small figure. It's, it's small in all extent. But how do you understand that, that these 0 0.4 are the biggest figure that the planet has seen for 50 million years? And, and how do we understand 50 million years? Because... Uh, that, that a, a single human being will experience a greater change than uh, has been recorded in the last 50 million years or, or estimated. And, and there you don't only have all the evolution of man, because man is like 5 million years old, is estimated. You're talking about a time scale of 10 times the whole evolution of man that a single scientist can measure in his working life. So the idea is that this just basically uh, it it, uh, it it blows all meters. That it it's uh, I can't say it's enormous to the twelfth degree, and 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 we're in this strange dilemma where science has given us these figures, but culture and our cognitive and our political sphere has not not acknowledged them as reality. Yes, it's it's very interesting in, in, in many ways what you're saying there. And I think is it Mike Hume, Cambridge, who talks about, I think it's climate determinism. I think that might be one of the ways he talks about it. But that we uh, the IPCC develops these very sophisticated or complex models, at least, uh, going decades into the future, uh, looking at various variables and climactic scenarios and so forth. And yet we don't have a similar set of processes or ways of thinking about the future in, in, in terms of, you know, our imagination, humanities, literature, and so forth. So this one particular way of seeing the world, the scientific mode, is, is very dominant 
in, in the clearly in the IPCC, but also if you think about more broadly in 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 our in our in our world, wh- where do we get the the visions of the future? And to, to what degree does this matter? Do you think just more generally this idea? I mean, how important is it? Do you think uh, the way that we talk about these environmental crises? I mean, I, I, as you say, you know, a 0.3 and 1.5 percent, and these figures they 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 can be quite abstract. Although if you put a polar bear on top, maybe you know that's what, what, one one strategy. But do you think this is a significant driver or element in how people are responding to these crises? Yes. Well, I I myself I could uh, kind of keep myself kind of from being too worried about this and uh, and but but then I thought like okay if this is the biggest issue in the world and I have some writing talent you know isn't this then the, the most worthy kind of cause you know don't I at least owe myself the uh, uh, I, I felt the, that I couldn't discuss the issues I, I, I didn't have the figures I didn't have the scale I didn't Really feel that I could discuss them, and and uh, and I could easily be distracted by a kind of a good engineering uncle of mine or something that would say, "Well, this this is just the natural thing that has been going on the last one hundred thousand years," and 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 so I could be easily distracted by some of the denial uh, rhetorics, uh, especially when it was packed in a, in a good uh, YouTube video from some university. And uh, and and I myself, I just felt uncomfortable that I, I didn't have the figures, and I didn't grasp the scale. So first, I kind of had to understand what was going on. What what are these thirty-five gigatons, and uh, and how is that in comparison to something else? And then I plowed through these IPCC reports, and despite my really good will, like I, I really wanted to understand them, it took like a week. To to uh, for a layman to go through these uh, RCP RCP scenarios RCP uh, what was it four point six eight point one and 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 then finally I could actually myself I could actually evaluate what of these scenarios I thought myself were plausible that is uh, so I could actually read a doomsday article in some paper. And then I could say, okay, no, but this is based on RCP 8.5. And that means that we're going to double our burning in the next 20 years. And we're going to keep that rate of burning until the end of the century. And, and I, I thought, okay, we are crazy sometimes as humans, but but we're not stark raving mad. You know, We're not going to double our impact and keep that impact to the end of the century. I just can't believe that. That's like... A, that would be a totally suicidal cult if we if we are doing that. So so it actually helped me to understand the science. But then I had uh, experience from when I was doing Dreamland, which is a book about energy issues in Iceland. That I had found that I did have a talent to translate scientific jargon into uh, into a narrative tale and and into storytelling and into. Uh, images and metaphors that the public could grasp so i saw myself as almost a, like a translator also of taking some of the ipcc so so everything that i write about is based on that grounded science but but then i 
was encouraged by scientists telling me that science is not embedded in in society a paradigm shift does not happen unless it's carried through other stories other perspectives and uh, and and even art poetry storytelling songs yes absolutely and the way you weave together these you create a narrative which is you know is with information this these insights uh, uh framing and and presenting the data in a way which which just brings it to life and is very rich to what extent are you concerned with the question of how we got here and how much does that matter the roots of the environmental crises well i i don't go so much into the blame game of uh, you know blaming the boomers or uh, blaming people from the 90s to 2000s for not uh, believing uh, i i i spend a, a few passages on maybe uh, how history will treat those that uh, kind of funded the denials and and uh, and discrediting the science but uh, i take a much more abstract approach i don't take frontal attacks and uh, so the metaphor that i was kind of using was that the issue is like a black hole that is you you can't look straight into a black hole it's it's so dense that it draws in all light and in the same way you can't just uh, fill a book with data about what is happening because uh, it it just uh, you won't get anything out of it so one of the ways of talking about the issue is by not talking about it and and how to understand the black hole is not looking straight at it but seeing how it's pulling in neighboring galaxies and uh, and uh, and stars so so one of the fundamental problem is time that is uh, so when a scientific report says 2100 we we don't feel anything we we don't have any emotional connection and if i try to write about that time it, it will always be stupid speculative fiction it will always be you know some flying cars and it will always be strangely outdated so Actually, instead of talking about the future, I talk about the past, which is this in the same grasp as this future. But I just I just stretch the other direction, and I write about my grandparents and their stories uh, because because their lives are fully loaded, and uh, and I'm trying to create this kind of picture that our children and our grandchildren will soon have these fully loaded lives and uh so i can kind of i can in a strange way i can i can write about the past i can write about the future while i'm writing about the past and and i can warp this past kind of and the emotions that this past gives us i can just use that and warp that into the future if you get what i mean uh, and so i'm using my grandparents as a measuring stick and i can ask them are 100 years a long time or a short time and they will tell me it's a short time so i can kind of kind of use this their life experience the love we have for them the stories that they can tell us and give us and then when i go into the speculative part of of imagining a future of 2100 i don't go into what gadgets we will have what implants we will have in our brain all that all that kind of mushy stuff because we've 
we've kind of lost the human sense of future. Uh, it's it's always been all about technology and uh, and some scientific breakthroughs, while what we uh, I think our fundamental goal is to be human and to have uh, human societies around us interact with other humans, have uh, fall in love, have children, or have uh, connections to others. So I create this scenario of uh, what I call pancake sci-fi. That is, I just remove all the gadgets, and uh, I imagine a scenario in the year 2100, which is a date when my daughter becomes my grandmother, basically. That is, my daughter will be the same age as my grandmother in the year 2100, and she will feel at that time these 100 years being a short time. Yes. I love the idea of intimate time. Could you maybe read an excerpt from your writing that explores and explains this idea a little? I'll read a short passage of my daughter and my grandmother. The phone rings and Grandma Hulda runs to answer it. We sit down to eat pancakes as the radio hums low in the background. I ask Hulda Filipia, my daughter, to do a little maths puzzle. How old is your great-grandma if she was born in 1924? She's 94, she says immediately. Fast math, I say. Well, I know how old she is, she grins. All right. But now you'll really have to do some sums. When will you be 94? So it would be the year I was born, 2008, plus 94. Exactly. She takes a piece of paper and pen and looks skeptically at the seat. She shows me the result as it must be a misunderstanding. Is that really right? 2,102. Yes, hopefully you'll be just as energetic as Grandma Hulda is now. Maybe you'll even be living in the same house. Maybe your 10-year-old great-granddaughter will be visiting, sitting with you in this kitchen in 2,102, just like you are sitting here now. Yes, maybe, says Hulda, sipping a glass of milk. One more equation. When will your great-granddaughter be 94 years old? Hulda writes some figures on a piece of paper with a little help. Would she have been born in 2,092? Yes, perhaps. Okay, 2,092 plus 94 is 2,186. She laughs at the thought. Yes, can you imagine that? You, born in 2008, might know a girl who will still be alive in the year 2,186. Hilda purses her mouth and looks into the air. Can I go now, she asks. Almost, I say. I have one more puzzle. How long is it from 1924 to 2186? Hilda does the maths. Is it 262 years? Imagine that, I say. 262 years. That's the length of time you connect across. You'll know the people who span all this time. Your time is the time of the people you know and love, the time that molds you, and your time is also the t- time of the people you will know and love, the time that you shape. You can touch 262 years with your bare hands. Your grandmother taught you. You will teach your granddaughter. 
you can have a direct impact on the future right up to the year 2186. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about how you use this in your university talks? So when I have uh, talks for like university students, they were born around the year 2000. Uh, so university students today, they will be cool 90 year olds in the year 2090. They might have a favorite 20 year old in their life born 2070. And this 20 year old will still be talking about them in the year 2160. So, so I tell a university student when I have lectures there, I tell them just, you know, fill a, fill a blank sheet of paper of, uh, of, uh, of maybe put a recipe, put some songs, uh, make a memorial evening in your name that will be, uh, that you can personally ask someone to ask execute. And this person will ask, execute this in the year 2160. And it's not an abstract idea. It's, it's just basically something that most of the students in the classroom will be able to do. So the idea is that to bring intimacy to the future and dates like 2160, give them some kind of an emo emotional charge, a charge of love and relationship and maybe urgency and maybe intimacy and, uh, and basically bring it close to the heart and then I can show you a report about the climate in 2090 and ask, you know, is this beyond your imagination of, uh, of time you're responsible for? Or is it only halfway in your most intimate relations? It's a very, it's a very poignant and I think effective way of thinking about the future a future that I think for for many reasons and for many people is is difficult to think about. You mentioned some of the the underlying forces, the factors that, you know, the, the, always thinking about technology. Of course, we didn't always think about the future. I mean, for, for centuries, you know, and in Christianity and so forth, we were looking back in time from a perfect time. But for, for, for the last couple of hundred years, this idea of the future has been uh, very, you know, the, the things will get better and things can get better and progress and so forth. And I think maybe that's something that's more challenging recently. And particularly, I guess, with, with you know, the, these various dystopian, environmental dystopian visions and so forth. So it's a very uh, effective and uh, good way, interesting way of, of, of navigating these these. these really big time frames, I think, in terms of our lives, trying to, you know, understand them. One of the other key and, and, and lovely elements in, in, in your book is talking about the glaciers and how the glaciers are disappearing and how climate change is affecting the glaciers. And there's lots of glacier language, you know, and cirques and flows and dead ice outlet glaciers. I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about, <laughs> about glaciers and, 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 and how important they are to Icelanders. So glaciers uh, in Icelandic history, we have a very mixed relationship with glaciers. So, uh, so it's more like a relationship with lions or sharks or something. You know, it's like 
<laughs> they, these are mighty beings that you don't play with. You know, it's it's a, uh, but 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 the tides turn when suddenly, you know, the mightiest beasts are receding or vanishing. So suddenly, you have to confront your own strength, and your own uh, kind of. Uh, uh, your responsibility of the power that you suddenly have when, when suddenly as mighty as a glacier, is is re receding because of your activity or your, the collective activity of humans. So glaciers in Iceland were advancing until uh, the be beginning of the 1900s uh, because of the local phenomenon of the mini ice age. So that meant that uh, you know. Advancing glaciers were uh, in context with uh, hunger, uh, cold years, uh, starvation, and and basically the situation Icelanders were living in when we were finding ourselves in kind of uh, the limit of growth. That is, Iceland could keep eighty thousand people alive with the topsoil and with the uh, low tech fisheries. And the rest of us just had to die, basically. So, uh, so we were like uh, for a thousand years, we were almost the same population as as many as settled Iceland in the beginning. So, so, so glaciers in Iceland uh, were not something that you would navigate easily. It, they were not something that you would uh, be affectionate towards because the glacial rivers. Are mighty and roaring, and and they would often have these flash floods that would uh, destroy your farmland or even your farm itself. Yes, and uh, so uh, my grandparents' generation, they were kind of the first generation that actually could explore and enjoy the glaciers as kind of modern travelers. That is, not as uh, hungry farmers or shepherds. But as kind of uh, modern people, with scientists trying to understand, estimate, map, measure, and basically understand all these elements of what makes a glacier and how it exactly, like you told about the language, how how a glacial flow, how they burst, how they uh, because we have this special combination of volcanic eruptions under glaciers, and. Uh, so there's a big language of glaciers and uh, and uh, and this strange language of a glacier being alive versus a glacier being dead. So a living glacier is because it's moving under gravity and it's uh, it's being fed by uh, the annual snowfall. And this snowfall then creeps down into the valleys where the glaciers where the glaciers melt. But then sometimes we have uh, this balance is missed and we have like sad remains of glaciers sitting maybe in the bottom of a valley and just waiting for yeah, just just waiting to vanish and, and that's what we call dead ice and then we have these sinkholes in the glaciers or these flows these uh we called svelgir in icelandic where uh, where water creeps down into the glacier and you can have these holes that are maybe one two hundred meter deep, and uh, and uh, quite dramatic. Yeah, very very scary. Kind of the worst possible death you could imagine of falling into a hole like this. And uh, so, 
so I was kind of writing about my grandparents' travel on Vatnajökull Glacier, which was a pioneering trip about 70 years ago. Uh, and uh, my grandmother is one of the first women to be allowed to go on such a trip. And uh, and then and then how that glacier was at that time in the context of eternity. But then I can use my grandmother's life to as like a measuring stick that uh, this glacier will only last about two grandmothers from now, and uh, until it's gone. So so the first generation that. So I know the first generation that uh, explored the glaciers, and I might know the generation that will see them vanish. Yes. How do the Icelandic people see the the dying glaciers now? So the, the problem with uh, Icelanders is that uh, we are used to nature so so I use this metaphor of nature leaving geological speed and entering human speed. And uh, we're, we're, we're kind of cycles that should take thousands of years or, or millions of years in terms of the oceans. When these cycles are suddenly acting on maybe a, a single lifetime. So the problem with Iceland is then that we are so used to nature uh, acting uh, living with the land that is is on a geological speed. That is, we have uh, volcanic fields here that are, you know, we have one recent one bigger than Manhattan, just uh, less than ten years old. We have uh, we have mountains that we have to have a naming competition for. You know, what do we call the new mountain? So so we're used to nature, kind of rapidly changing, and. Uh, and because we have historical documents of the glaciers being smaller, some people have thought that this was just nature again reaching some kind of a natural state, you know, how, how it was in the year 1000. So, uh, so Icelanders also want better weather. <laughs> so so uh, a warmer climate, maybe some apple trees, uh, maybe uh, a longer summer. That is something that uh, that we have always wanted. So uh, so we're in this mixed kind of uh, situation of, of uh, being in a favorable summer, but still telling us, I have to pinch myself and remind me, this is not okay. This is not, this is not a good symbol, like it was in the last, you know, like it was 200 years ago or 300 years ago, because this is an indicator of a nature going out of balance and uh, while we might benefit on the short term, ocean acidification might strike us back. Uh, the vanishing glaciers in Iceland don't matter so much. They, they could cause volcanic eruptions, but it's much, much worse, uh, for example, in the Himalayas and, and where people rely on glaciers as the source of water. And this perfect system that a glacier is accumulating water during the wet season when you don't need it and releasing it when you really need it during the dry season. So, uh, so uh, even though glacial water is somewhere in the Himalayas only 10% of the annual rainfall, it can be 90 to 100% of the water that, that kind of uh, divides between life and death. 
in in uh, in a warm year. So uh, defines between life and death. So so I'm not so worried about Iceland or if Iceland. You know, of course, we will miss the glaciers, but we will see some other landscape emerge, and it will probably be beautiful as well. But the glaciers, as an entity in Iceland, makes it completely you know beautiful and uh, and these big ice fields and it's almost unimaginable when you're traveling a glacier and you you know that under your feet are the thickness of two empire state buildings and you spread that mass like uh, hundreds of square kilometers around you just to grasp the idea that this is fragile it's it's almost impossible it's just it really just breaks your your brain trying to trying to imagine that this total immense uh, beast that a glacier is, is actually vanishing, is actually fragile, and will actually be gone within the lifetime of someone you will know. Yeah, what would you say is the state of awareness about climate change in, in, in many countries, particularly in, in Anglo, uh, sphere, Australia, America, the UK, but in other countries too, there's been you know, very significant climate denial and so forth. Although in recent, the last year, last six months, there seems to be considerable momentum and much more awareness uh, as to the, what, what's really happening and also to a, a great degree the, the, the way in which you know, various vested interests or the confusion that's been created about, about, about climate change could you describe maybe a little bit the lay of the land in, in, in Iceland? Well, Iceland uh, was lucky that we, uh, even before the discussion of climate change, we harnessed uh, quite a lot of geothermal energy to heat the cities and uh, and homes. So we had uh, met many of these climate targets in terms of uh, domestic electricity use already. and And maybe that... That made us a bit kind of uh, sleepy, so uh, we haven't really. So, so big scale denialism hasn't really been like we can see in America. But, but like I said, even the people living in farms close to the glacier, looking at them vanish, uh, they would, they would feel like it was natural. So there have been anthropologic anthropological uh, anthropological studies of the yes. of the views of the people that are maybe living on a farm next to a glacier and seeing it vanish but they will not be alarmed because they will feel like this is some kind of a natural phenomenon and they would refer to the state of the glacier in the year 1100 that that the glacier had not yet even reached that level but that's a very interesting thing because it's like a a scientist in Potsdam told me that uh, we needed this Copernicus revolution. That is, we could not measure on our own body and our own experience that the the sun was not going around the planet. You know, we, we could not feel that we were going around the sun, but we felt like the sun was going around us. And and we needed uh, we needed just to believe scientists. So I, I can't even prove it myself today. So I just have to believe the consensus of science kind of telling me what is happening. And and in this case, you could say that the local knowledge, which 
I normally respect and I normally think is important. Here, the no local knowledge kind of uh, contradicts the global measurements. That is here uh, uh, a phenomenon that might seem like a local phenomenon is happening for a different reason. So, so the, the state of the glaciers in the year 1100 was on a different level, but because of a different reason than it's going there now. So it's going there to that state because of CO2 and because of global warming now, while it was because of a local weather pattern in the year 1100. So the feeling of this being a normal going back to 1100 is kind of a false uh, is is a kind of a false indicator of uh, of uh, of what is happening. Yes, it's it's very interesting as well in in a way though that certainly in in urban areas we're we're very uh, inoculated, but very uh, we're not in contact with the natural world. So it's fascinating to see that that a culture in, in is in connection and has this awareness of the transience or the changing nature of of the weather of of the environment there's a tremendous momentum around climate mitigation and lots of talk about that and lots of initiatives and and and, and you know very important and so forth but this whole question of adaptation is is very important as well and responding to the changes uh, and and uh, you know over time and it's it's quite interesting as well i mean throughout your work there's this interrogation or exploration of of of, of language and I, I and i don't know which which of your books it's in but this the talking about the the way and the, the the kinds of language we use have an impact on how we see things so for example the language of economics and i think you were talking about how at one stage that just felt very natural to you because of the culture economically in Iceland at the time and, and, and so forth. But actually when you start to look at that, you realize that that's a very particular, it's kind of the extracted logic, the econ economism that, that underlies it. And the idea that nature needs to, you know, needs labor needs to be turned into something rather than just being nature as it were. Do you see elements of that in, in, in Icelandic culture? still yes uh, so what i was trying to understand also is i wanted to question our own times because we always we kind of have had this self-confidence of being uh, the free world uh, be able to think freely and uh, freedom of expression and and all these things and uh, but the regimes would always be elsewhere you know they would be a communist country or some arabian state or something where you, you couldn't speak or north korea or something but we we would be free but then i was kind of trying to explore kind of the rationality because what is happening to the planet is kind of the combined excellence and rationality of uh, of humans that is i was accused of being irrational when I wanted to protect a certain area in the highlands of Iceland. And, yes, and, uh, and, okay. and so, so they were going to build a dam and I said, you can't build a dam. This is so beautiful. It's, it's like uh, the most amazing place that I've seen. It's like uh, it has, has falcons and it has uh, wild geese and waterfalls and uh, basalt columns and, uh, and red bedrock that uh, where, where a glacier river explodes kind of through a gorge and you, you can't just sink this area. 
but but that was not taken you know that was those were words did not contain any arguments so i had to say and people were advising me and said you have to speak like economically you have to you know you have to if you're going to be taken seriously you have to say <clears throat> this place will be valuable for the brand of iceland and when we want to sell our products abroad then we want to show pictures of this area or or this area can attract tourists and create revenue in the neighboring in the neighborhood or or this could be a good uh, shooting place for uh, for uh, a hollywood movie where a character goes to find uh, beautiful nature <laughs> so 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 beautiful nature in itself would not be taken for granted unless i could put it into some kind of an economic rhetoric and then i found a travel log from 1943 a book about a, a poet born 1877 that was traveling around this area and and his language was just totally over the top he was just uh, he was almost like he had some kind of a mountain mania or something he just it just exploded in uh, in uh, in metaphors and divine symbols and and just uh, i haven't read such a, like a baroque language or romantic <laughs> it was like romantic baroque it was just totally totally over the top it was like the accumulated romanticism of uh, of 100 years combined with some kind of christianity spiritism and just he just he just exploded this person on that exact spot that was going to be drowned so i thought this was very interesting that he regarded the area as holy but i was not allowed during even though i was a uh, you know a, a pampered rich person you know, like like from a, the richest generation that has lived in iceland we could not allow ourselves to to speak freely in that way because i would think that you, you a rich person could say that that is the the argument was always first you become rich and then you can understand nature <laughs> or you can afford to to protect areas so i started to question maybe the rationality of our uh, our language our system this economicalization of uh, of nature is nothing unless you can prove it has some kind of product value and and also this kind of new thinking of calculating the service nature provides for you that's also part of kind of going into that discussion so the idea was that our combined rationality our combined excellence our combined economic uh, good economic decisions is what is pushing earth off the rails and it would have been rational to to consider at least half the earth holy that is uh, off the rails uh, untouchable uh, and if we had considered at least half our forests holy half our beaches holy half of our you know mountains holy then we would not be faced with these problems so i'm kind of playing with these ideas i'm i'm not going totally into mysticism but i'm just using that to question our current regime and show us that our rationality was in the end not rational and uh, and some kind of awe uh, some kind of poetic 
uh, view some kind of sense of beauty was maybe part of the immune system of the planet that was meant to prevent us from from destroying it so uh, so in the book i'm uh, i'm firmly based on science i'm using science but i'm also using mythology using uh, language using kind of all of these cultural things that we have used to understand our world understand nature but also to use those metaphors to understand the current situation like uh, using nordic mythology to explain what a glacier is this this big frozen cow that uh, that gives you infinite water yes and where do you find do you find art now today in iceland elsewhere that's engaged exploring these questions not in a wholly rational way necessarily in a in an artistic way in another way using language and imagination and is there some art that 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 you're familiar with that you inspires you yes well i think i think uh, every paradigm shift you know we would not be uh, we would not have become christian without the psalms and the music uh, we would not have become independent nations without the songs and the poems and the music uh, women liberation uh, civil rights movements you know all these movements have all come the paradigms have all been moved with art and writing music poetry so and of course lots of bad music bad poetry and bad 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 art comes with it but but you can't have the good without the bad so so uh, so of course there will be lots of of paintings of people holding hands across the planet <laughs> and stuff like that but but i i see lots of uh, interesting things like the uh, you know like like uh, i think you interviewed uh, roman krasnik writing about long term thinking we have art that is dealing with that like with uh, with kate uh, in the in the future library in in norway uh, where they're planting trees to uh, and and writing stories not to be read uh, and printed until the tree has fully grown after 100 years to be printed on that paper we see uh, Oliver Eliasson he's he's using uh, climate change and also design and and things to to bring these issues into the light lots of writers of course you know we have like uh, sci-fi writers that have gone uh, like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson that is you know creating these future scenarios and making even creating a language for future technology that we will uh, deal with and uh, and use we have uh, then endless you know activities studies you know and and artists that are also even now into not making things that is uh, i just don't believe that making thing that that the world does not need more things that the last thing that we need is more things because everything that we bring into the world is is taking something away from the natural world 
so so uh, yeah the, this will this this has to go through art and music and uh, and writing to become a real paradigm shift that we need and is this can this go hand in hand with activism do you think that's important i know sven linkfist talks about this in one of his last books about creating art or being in the world and creating change taking action it's not a dichotomy but how do you see that well I, i've been uh, i've been very deeply involved in activism and uh, and i was uh, you know organizing concerts marches uh, advertising campaigns and uh, petitions and uh, stands outside of the parliament and and you know all these things and and we eventually moved kind of the the uh, the paradigm in Iceland towards how we should treat our rivers and and landscape. We 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 significantly moved it as a as a grassroots movement, at least for the while. But but then I found that uh, my talent would be maybe better served also in the writing that is in spending lots and lots of time on thinking about the issues and and bringing out concepts and bringing out uh, parad- uh bringing out metaphors and things that uh, would maybe empower the activists so actually when i made my book dreamland there were lots and lots of people that thanked me for that because uh, i had taken the uh, kind of taking on the task of taking issues that no, people found difficult to understand and scattered information and, and put it into a, a language that was both uh, informing but also, uh, as they said, entertaining. So actually people finished the books and they understood something from from finishing the book. And your documentary of Dreamland is, is superb. I just really think that's a great, great, powerful engaging documentary yeah thank you also i found that because uh, in order to keep myself in activism I, I i kind of had to channel my activism through the art because otherwise it just drained my resources you know you can't organize uh, concerts for a living so i found a way to kind of channel the activism through my art and through my writing and through my films and through through these things and 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 that's how activism stopped kind of eating away from from my art but but just became a more like a fundament of it yes there 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 are of course many different uh groups in society as it were involved engaged increasingly active in these areas and I saw your recent, I think, TED talk as a TED countdown or something like that. Really nice and uh, very good. And then I was just wondering, I started to look TED countdown and I noticed various corporations, corporate groups, you know, supporting that and the, the energy behind it. And it's something that's come up before on the podcast. There's, you know, tremendous momentum. And in many ways, the sustainability agenda is being driven by profit maximizing corporations does this worry you i don't really know what system 
is required. But I think to address the climate crisis, you need a huge awareness of the public. You need a generation that uh, is aware of the issue and and is determined to take kind of the industries, the the the, uh, the political and the business industries into the right direction. And I think industries that do not fit into these models that are being made now, like you know the donut economy, the uh, basic needs of zero carbon and sustainability, uh, corporations that will not meet these standards, they will just die. They will both die because the talent will not go there. It will be unethical to work for them. And they will just die because they will become like dinosaurs, like uh, Kodak or something. They, they will just not meet future regulations. They will not meet uh, the public opinion. So, so. Uh, I don't think capitalism is going to save the planet. I think we need uh, very big, uh, like we've seen in addressing the coronavirus, we need a kind of strong consensus among the governments of the world of how to manage resources, how to develop technologies to remove CO2 or, or initiatives, how to, uh, you know, put measures that prevent us from doing harm to future generations. But that's an enormous task. So, so because in Iceland, we had, uh, it was the government actually that was kind of destroying the highlands of Iceland. So, so I don't, I don't over idealize either, you know, government or corporation. I, I think it's, uh, it's a more complex, uh, balance of, of power and uh, influence and all these things. Yes, I suppose underlying it also, there are ideas, I guess, about human power in the sense, you know, they talk about the Anthropocene and you talk about this you know, geological time becoming human time in a, in a way. There is so many initiatives now, so much movement, money, these big plans to change things, to decarbonize solar energy, wind energy, which within themselves, which are kind of technocratic potentially and, you know, extract, extractivism as well, really significant economic, environmental impact of you know manufacturing transporting constructing the precious uh this metals or the special metals the rare earths and all these kind of things that go into these these new paradigms that that are that carry with them the same kind of political economic was well, you say violence intrinsic to to these systems to to to, to the world we have of today but sometimes I just wonder whether a little bit of more humility or this, this idea that, you know, we can change these, these systems, energy systems within short timeframes that have taken decades to develop and have embedded in them all kinds of socioeconomic relationships, you know, who's 
overlooking those who's who's you know you start to look into some of these projects for wind energy and where the land has maybe been appropriated and and you know some of the 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 mining for the metals and so forth and that's kind of somehow linked into this mitigation you know that we we've created this situation so we can deal with the situation we can and we need to deal with it and we need to deal with it now and we need to deal with it urgently which creates this kind of also this kind of panic as well maybe to some degree the ideas not necessarily been fully thought out in history so many technologies have had unintended consequences yes exactly i i was struggling with this myself like uh, because uh, I didn't want to write a doomsday book, you know, I just didn't want to be like, <laughs> I didn't want to be the party pooper, you know, write some, <laughs> write some, uh, you know, about the IPCC reports and say, sorry guys, it's over, you know, like, so, and, and I didn't, uh, also just, I didn't really believe it was over, that is, or maybe, or maybe I might be a bad example, but you know, I would always fight cancer if I had a 1% chance of living. You know, the, 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 the doomsday scenario might be quite, might be quite relevant. In, uh, in Dreamland, I was writing about, I was looking for metaphors to understand these systems. So, uh, so one theory in Dreamland was the pyramid theory. Because, because we were actually fighting clean energy in Iceland that is uh, so so and clean energy can be like big oil and can be like you know big wind big solar will probably be you know a destructive factor in many places uh, and and it might even uh, overrule kind of uh, you know local communities and and stuff like that so so in dreamland we were we had this situation where the government was planning basically to to dam every single river in Iceland and uh, and make aluminum out of them uh, because aluminum is incredibly energy intensive and we were they, they told us we were hypocrites because uh, this aluminum would be uh, better than Chinese aluminum because uh, you know if we didn't build the aluminum factories in Iceland with clean energy they would build a coal-fired plant in China with dirty energy, polluting nine times more. But then I asked, you know, but, but then the, the reality kicked in that, uh, of course, the Chinese wanted to use their resources. They wanted to coal, change their coal into something, you know, of commerce. So even though Iceland was building a, an aluminum factory, China was building a hundred aluminum factories. And uh, so we didn't prevent any aluminum factory from being built. We just built yet another aluminum factory that is losing money now because of uh, of uh, the overexpansion that took place in the last uh, 20 years. So, so and but we had, but we could see very clearly here kind of the interest groups. That is, the goal was not to have built a dam, but to be building dams. So we had like uh, engineering companies, we had contractors, they owned the machines, they owned, uh, they knew how to build a dam and they became better at it with every single dam. So eventually in a single person's working life, he could finish Icelandic river system. Uh, just being addicted to always being building a dam. So I created this uh, Suedo theory, 
which was called uh, uh, you can't build one pyramid. It was uh, supposed to prove why the pyramids in uh, in Egypt are three. So I, I didn't <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about you know if they were based with one hundred years interval or five hundred years interval. I just made this thought experiment. I was like I I, I without checking historical documents, I bet I bet the pyramids were not built like. Uh, like one and then another one 200 years later, I bet they were all based in one single crazy phase. Because when you have 40,000 people building a pyramid for 40 years, you just don't stop doing that. You know, of course, of course you know, what, what do you, what do you, the whole society is about from the rope makers to the, to the supply chain, to the, the bread bakers, to the chief engineer and the architect and the high priest. Everyone has their esteem and role according to where they are in building the pyramid. And after 40 years of building a pyramid, you don't just dismantle that system. You'll have chaos. You know, what what, what role shall you have in life? You just don't let 40,000 people go. So, so before even they finish the first pyramid, they have already started the other one. So, so, so after 80 years of building a pyramid, uh, nobody even asks, you know, about the third pyramid, it's just a question: How much bigger it will be than the than the uh, <laughs> than the last two? So it's not until they have finished the third pyramid that they start scratching their heads and say, "Okay, can this go on forever? Are we going to build four and five and and then somebody starts to see that it doesn't even cast the proper shade in the desert, and it only serves one dead person, and then they hear the news from uh, from Greece that. There they don't build pyramids. They make these uh, amphitheaters, and and only every other person is a slave, not everybody. And uh, and uh, and they suddenly start seeing there might be an alternative way of living. And I think that uh, and and if you check historical documents, then this crazy pyramid phase was about one hundred and twenty years, which is kind of about the time that our industrial kind of uh, evolution has been in the last. Yeah, 120 years. And many people are now scratching their heads over uh, what we have done. Can we continue? And, uh, and, and but the problem is that, uh, that ideally, okay, let's shut down all the car factories. But you know, people are living, the, the social consequences can be like Detroit. You know, let's shut down all meat production. You know, the social consequences for... Uh, for farming communities all everywhere. So, so it can't be downplayed or, or talked lightly about kind of the social aspects of, of the change. Stop eating meat, stop, you know, using coal, stop using this. Everywhere you stop something, there is possibly somebody that is harmed that is not in a very strong situation. So you can have all sorts of political you know, outturns of this, and and you can't talk down to the people that are in this situation because basically they were founded on serving us or or like serving you know the the market or serving people. So so you can't just say people to people suddenly, no, I don't need you anymore. You can just uh, your your life will have to go down the drain. So this is a huge kind of transition that has to take place on every level technological level social level uh, and uh, and it's it's 
you can't just leave big parts of the population, you know, all the farms or all the workers in some era without any kind of support or sympathy or or uh, or uh, work people out to the situation. So yes, well, un- unfortunately, I- I'm not sure that capitalism hasn't already done that. And what we're seeing today, in many ways, the result of exactly the type of thing you're talking about: whole sectors, whole communities, whole industries, yeah. suddenly no longer being. But it's a very interesting way you frame it, and I hadn't come across that idea. And it's it's uh, it's very interesting, and, and and the idea of thinking about a transition, and it, it it's a reminder of how complex and interlinked so many of these questions are and then the, the, but but with the, the the technocracy then you can see horrible solutions being presented like uh, like uh, i think one of the worst one is called backs or something it's about uh, plant, planting a trillion trees and burning them <laughs> it's like it's like it's like the worst dystopian uh, idea of, uh, of, uh, of 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 forests the size of america being Planted with geo crop and then burned and 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 the the the, the timber or the the the, uh, the CO two from burning it uh, put underground or something. It's like it's like and and I was so astonished that that was being discussed on a very high level and and even you know considered one of the solutions or or or, or spraying sulfur like uh, imitating volcanic eruptions and. And that will not save the oceans from ocean acidification. So, so, so uh, of course you you are also afraid of consequences of some simple solutions that might just uh, kick off without uh, being properly criticized or 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 discussed. Yes. What What's next for you, Andre? Well, so I uh, I got tangled up in. Uh, some documentary films. So uh, actually premiered my latest documentary just uh, two weeks ago, a, a full feature documentary called The Hero's Journey to the Third Pole, a bipolar musical documentary with elephants. It's a... It's a <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a mental health awareness film that I kind of... Uh, I'm kind of an accidental filmmaker, so I, I kind of uh, yeah did did that film while I was writing uh, Time and Water, and uh, and so but it was quite intense to have uh, simultaneously the burden of the whole world and and mental health issues kind of uh, so so I should I should I should write a book about nothing or like <laughs> have nothing at stake in my next book, but. But then I did also unintentionally, or I did, uh, not unintentionally, I did uh, a short documentary during the COVID called Apocalypse, which is a kind of, uh, we interviewed lots of philosophers and thinkers and artists about the greater meaning of this big pause that we're in, this uh, experiencing uh, in the middle of it in uh, during kind of Easter, April this year, we interviewed people about yeah what what it means to be to experience the world stopping and and what does it have uh, in a what meaning does it have in a bigger context of, of experiencing that so uh, we that is like a half hour 
film and we got then uh, artists to fill the void. That is, they were losing all their stages, but we got them to fill up the uh, the uh, the empty places. So we had a dancer dancing her way through the empty international airport into the runway and uh, performing there because the, the National Theatre was closed. And and uh, so we're making some kind of a yeah, apocalypse documentary. And uh, and then uh, Time and Water will probably become a documentary because much of the interviews in it were filmed and, and much of the information. And then uh, I'm probably going to make a either a children's book next or a, uh, a small novella. That's kind of the next thing that comes to mind. That's a very full plate. Uh, before you go, maybe could you leave us with another passage from On Time and Water? When a system collapses, language is released from its moorings. Words meant to encapsulate reality hang empty in the air, no longer applicable to anything. Textbooks are rendered obsolete overnight, and overly complex hierarchies fade away. People suddenly find it difficult to hit upon the right phrasing, to articulate concepts that match the reality. Between Hövde and Köpfing's former headquarters, that is, uh, Hövde is the house where Reagan and Gorbachev met, and Köpfing was the bankruptcy of the third biggest bankruptcy in capitalist history. So between Hövde and Köpfing's former headquarters, there's a grassy lawn. In its center stands a paltry copse of trees, six spruces, and some woolly willow shrubs. Lying inside that cluster of trees between the two buildings, looking up at the sky, I found myself wondering which system would collapse next, what big idea would be next to take hold. Scientists have shown us that the foundations of life, of Earth itself, are failing. The principal ideologies of the 20th century considered the Earth and nature as sources of inexpensive, infinite raw material. Humans assumed that the atmosphere could continually absorb emissions, that oceans could endlessly absorb waste, that soil could constantly renew itself, giving more fertilizer, that animal species would keep moving aside as humans colonized more and more space. If scientists' predictions prove accurate about the future of the oceans and the atmosphere, about the future of weather systems, about the future of glaciers and coastal ecosystems, then we must ask what words can encapsulate such immense issues? What ideology can handle this? What should I read? Milton Friedman, Confucius, Karl Marx, the Book of Revelations, the Koran, the Vedas? How to tame these desires of ours, this consumption and materialism that by any and every measurement promise to empower, overpower Earth's fundamental life systems? This book is about time and water. Over the next hundred years, there will be foundational changes in the nature of water on our Earth. Glaciers will melt away, ocean levels will rise, increasing global temperatures will lead to droughts and floods. The oceans will acidify to a degree not seen for 50 million years. All this will happen during the lifetime of a child who is born today and lives to be my grandmother's age, 95. Thank you, Andre, and thank you so much for your time today, and I wish you the very best of success. 
Thank you much. It was great, great talking. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.